This is Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master, creating products customers love. Get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad. Think about what would you do if you were the first product hire in a rapidly growing company? Our guest was in that situation. His name is Kenton Hansen, and he was in that position at Roll 23 years ago. Now the company has more than 9 million users on its platform, providing the best of tabletop gaming in the online environment. And Kenton is the, the product director now at Roll20, and he has built the product management and UX capabilities, the processes, the teams that the company's used over those three years. And I want to talk with him about what that journey was like so all of us as product masters can learn from that journey as well. And by the way, if you want any of the detailed summary, the written notes of what we talk about, you can get those along with a one-page action guide to help you put into action any insights that we discuss, all at productmasterynow.com slash 346. Kenton, thank you so much for joining us. Chad, thanks for having me. Very glad to be here. I'm glad we got connected. We got connected through a mutual friend. And it's interesting to hear about the work you're doing. And I think this is a fascinating journey. So I'm hoping you can just kind of set the stage for us at first. You know, now with 9 million users, I don't know what it was like three years ago. But what was going on at Roll20 to kind of make them think about we need a product? It was a time of targeted growth, for sure. The 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 ownership and, and the advisory board was excited about growing the platform. And they thought that there was a lot of potential left. And this is after a significant amount of time in business already growing pretty significantly. I, I believe we had just announced our three millionth user at the time that I, I had started. And I joined the team, which was, you know, one development team, just I think five developers, and then some other of those crucial important roles like customer experience and, and marketing, along with some planning and management. But uh, I was the 12th employee at Roll20, and we're getting ready to hire our 66th or so, something like that. Okay. So it was a growth phase. Yeah. So sometimes product gets brought on if it wasn't there already because it's in a decline and we're trying to figure out something to you know fix the organization. In this situation, it was there's a growth to be had and let's figure out how to capture that. Yeah, absolutely. There was kind of a product vacuum as the one of the co-founders was moving into the chief executive officer role and the, the development management, which had kind of filled in that role, the, the product role was moving more into getting the technical aspects right uh, a vacuum was was created that they recognized there and uh, I was I was happy to come in and and provide support across the organization to make sure that growth could happen absolutely and I assume you already enjoy tabletop games I did I am not nearly as a dyed in the cloth fan as many uh, of my uh, coworkers are for sure but I do enjoy playing and it is it is really nice to do product research when the thing you like is the product mm-hmm. that you're researching for sure too so stranger things on Netflix is really what got me uh, excited about it I, I liked the show and remembered that you know oh a very long time before that I had I had played once or twice some some tabletop role-playing games and got together with my adult friends and said hey we should play this game and did that for a little while, played on Roll20 for a little while before I was ever an employee. And so I knew about the company and that's how I, I, I got connected. 
Excellent. Yep, my experience is rather limited. Uh, Monopoly when I was a kid, and more recently with my kids, the family plays Catan and Dominion and a a few others at times. So, okay. I wonder if you can take us back to, you know, when you first got there, we often think about, well, what would it be like to be in that role, right? This new environment, and what would you do trying to bring in some kind of product management, product process to this organization? What were those first few months like? Coming into the first product role, I, I treated it a lot like I would treat um, a consultancy role or, or a kind of the smoke jumper brought in to help an organization jumpstart something. And I just did a whole lot of talking. I talked to people as often as I could in the organization. And the the team started calling it uh, therapy with Kenton. You know, they, they would come in and, and just share their problems with me. And I'd, I'd start writing those down. I, I really actually appreciate one thing about our culture at Roll20 that I think is wonderful is we we put no expectations on the first 90 days of, a, of an employee's onboarding uh, period. So uh, someone can get in, you know, in my case, product knowledge, understand the the vastness of what Roll20 has to offer and the various customers that you might never think about because they're they're not evident to the end user. But I, I started making those notes and getting myself familiar. And we've been a virtual company since the very inception uh, of Roll20. I mean, it was started because three friends wanted to play together, but they were spread across the United States. So they created a, a tool that would help them do that. And so doing that in a virtual environment is also a little bit challenging and, and interesting. You have to be more, uh, there's no water cooler to gather around. You have to be much more targeted in the, in the people that you, you look for and understand what they do and how they contribute, not just what their job title is and what you'd expect them to contribute, but what positional keys do they, do they, uh, might they hold at that time? Um, so after gathering, you know, these kinds of problems and uh, situations that need to be solved and understanding the flow of, of business and revenue and, and innovation within the organization, I was able to, you know, start doing a, a punch list of sorts, uh, something, if we talk about the three horizons, right, and, and the third horizon being uh, groundbreaking innovation and horizon one being the iteration that can happen every day, I just wanted to make sure that we got set on what some of that horizon one work could be, what could we deliver our user base in that time, as well as understand what projects um, and what features could be delivered in in the now time uh, immediately and help to shepherd those through the process and understand where the process needed to change in that too. Sounds like you did a good job there, you know, taking the doctor approach of diagnosing the situation first, right? Before yeah. you start trying to prescribe. Very, very you much. You were so. not the bull in the china shop just running in and saying, this is what we're going to do. I tried really hard not to be. I hope my coworkers will agree when they listen to this. But yeah, not, not make a mess of things, but understand how I can help clean up. Well, I like that you got the term coined that they gave you, you know, therapy sessions with kitten. That's pretty uh, powerful just to say how effective that was, I think. Yeah, yeah. Being understanding is the thing and the, the key to everything, like understanding the customer. Yep, inside and outside. Yeah. We got to have empathy. Very important. And you said it's been a virtual organization from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now having uh, lived through COVID and a lot of people moving to remote work, if they weren't on virtual teams before, we're more familiar with that. But the challenges are, are there. What did you find helpful just in trying to, since your purpose was to listen and get to know the people and the problems, what did you find helpful doing that in a virtual environment? In my virtual environment, the way that I, I tried to do it is to be observational, listen more than I spoke, and that that means uh, type less than I read in in, in Slack or Teams or whatever uh, chat 
solution you might be using, being in all the different channels and rooms and, and just reading uh, that news feed, essentially, to be able to internalize the actual happenings. And and once you start internalizing the happenings, the characters emerge and the personalities emerge and getting to know those people um, and connect with those people helps to put the events in the context uh, of where they came. And so, you know, again, empathy and understanding, uh, but that starts with with listening or reading in a lot of cases for the virtual environments. The quick coffee chats or volunteering for a relatively simple task in order to get to work alongside those people and understand their work is is really had been effective at that time. And especially in, in a smaller organization that's virtual, whether that's, you know, the entire organization that's small or, you know, your, your business group or the product portfolio that you're a part of being uh smaller, but starting with the lower orbit and then working out was the other key. Yeah, those are really good tips. I appreciate you sharing them. So back to the listening more than I spoke and the asynchronous environment, those messaging tools, reading uh, more than you're typing, Mm -hmm. more than writing and volunteering for simple tasks as a way to build trust. You know, you help others out and you build trust and rapport. So very good. Okay. You ended up after this listening kind of, as we said, with a punch list of some of the main problems. Can you take us through kind of what were the big things that you were discovering and what you did about them as you were kind of in this new product role? I knew from the beginning that with growth as the target and, and massive growth, you know, really scaling, that's what I was in the organization for. That's what I wanted to do. That's what the the hiring and interview process talked about me doing. I knew that, you know, this this punch list and getting the product process organized was a small part of the the larger goal. So in everything that I was doing, I was trying to make sure that I understood that what got us here is not going to get us there. And that goes across um user research, the the product ownership and product management that happens inside of that, the scoping and product requirements that, that have to be gathered and the way that they're presented. I, I tried really hard to rely on the other members of the, of the team to help me not only create those processes in a way that would be adopted faster and, and building allies while the processes are being built, but also to get some of the work off my plate, honestly, because there, there's always too much to do. Product is always understaffed. So especially when there was one one, one of me and uh, all the other responsibilities that might come up. So those strategies and philosophies needed to change and they had to change to accommodate not just the stage that we're in now, but also the stages that I expected after that point, immediately after that point, I guess, and and a little bit further beyond. Okay. So two things in there I'm curious about, kind of the point of the organization moving the, the change in scale, right, as we grow, mm-hmm. how that kind of was part of your thinking. And then the level of influence that you had at the time you showed up, right? Because you said you, you, you built a lot of trust, it sounds like, through listening and through helping, and you relied on some other team members. But I'm just curious what, what the actual level of, you know, kind of like real authority you had versus the influence you had. So let me start there first, and then I'll get back to the change. Looking back on it, I think my personality played a lot into the volunteerism, right? Like volunteering to help a task, people would would that that's the best way to build trust. And what was what was given, handed over was I think equitable, like the right amount that was given at the time, but not nearly enough as 
as what would be needed in order to make those effective changes. And so I, I knew I needed to prove uh, myself is really the wrong connotation that I want. Like uh, show that show that I could handle myself was was more more accurate. And that's never a uh, maybe somebody can do it in a really great way that they they hit everything. But uh, most humans are going to make mistakes, are going to make bad calls, are going to have bad information that they make good calls on that end up that turn out bad. And showing up for the mistakes as much as showing up for the successes is key. I always find that when I'm talking to a product person, you can kind of tell the really good product people from the real, they're not really bad, but from the less good product people, let's say, the product people who are still learning when they talk about the team succeeded by this or I failed in this way, right? Like they understand you share a victory and you carry defeat yourself. And so it it was bumps and bruises. Yeah. I just want to underscore that as such an important point. Because I, I think we have uh, all had experiences with maybe someone in a work setting that was the opposite, mm-hmm. right? It's like, you know, when the team did something well, they took all the credit. Mm-hmm. And when uh, they messed something up, they blamed it on the team. Yeah. And the opposite is how you win friends and influence people. Right. And the opposite is generally true, too, right? Like if if you're setting the goals, the direction for, for the team, even if they, you know, exceed expectations, but you're not accurate, then... Uh, the whole team fails, right? Like you carry that weight as a product person for sure. Yep. That's good. Okay. And all that goes to building influence, right? Just mm-hmm. uh, being able to have that informal influence with others that they want to get things done because they see that it's important to do and how it's going to help everyone. Yeah. Influence isn't built in the room, right? Like is it, it isn't built in a presentation where you say, this is what we're going to do. And then everybody stands and applauds. Uh, that that's, makes for a great movie. That's a great script. And when you retell the victory stories at your reti- retirement parties, you can tell them that way if you want to. But the truth of the matter is the victories are won and, and the influence is gained in small, intimate settings, one-on-one saying, I'd like to get your input on this. I'd like to get your understanding on this. And even if someone just buys into your idea, when you're in that big room, giving that big presentation, it everyone feels like they're part of that that decision, right? Like this isn't just Kenton giving his presentation. This is everyone, or this is me. I helped Kenton give this presentation, so I'm going to stand up and applaud. I have yet to get a standing ovation. I need to make that clear. It's on my, on my to-do list, but. Very good. Okay. The other part of that question that came up for me was that change issue, right? So mm-hmm. the organization is at one level of scale now. They're wanting to grow, move to another level. Typically, we do see organizations shift rather dramatically in terms of structure and processes when we go through some dramatic scaling. And what was your, in your mind about that, about what was wrong with the processes in place now in terms of them not getting you where you needed to go? I think more than what was wrong with the processes is the the concept that pre-optimization is waste. I, I could have designed the I could have designed a process and slammed slammed that through a change in the organization and said this is the only way that it can work and this is the only way that it will work. Um, but baked into that are so many assumptions about how the world would change. And I mean, especially in, in 2021, looking back at 2020, we can all say pretty easily that no one no one was expecting the 2020 that happened. So trying to pre-optimize an organization to be ready for a feature roadmap for June of 2020, it was going to be wrong. You're going to throw the entire thing out unless... Uh, I can't even think of it unless I think in general, the the June 2020 roadmap is not going to happen. So it it was all about solving the problems that were emergent at the time and and just trying to understand what I thought would be the next problem and preparing um, 
not even a solution, but let's say a pre-solution, just preparing the the potential outcomes that I would hope to expect as new solutions were being implemented. And I mean, I, I hate to whitewash history here. I hate to uh, say that it was it was easy and I was planning it the whole time, right? Like this is uh, learned through experience more than it can be uh, taught for sure. Yeah. A lot of that is just facing the problems that come up in the moment. Right. So if you tripled the amount of users in those three years from 3 million to 9 million and the team is growing at the same time, but you're going to find inadequacies in the processes that are in place, problems that come up and needing yep. to solve those. The challenge with that is it's easy to get quickly thrown into firefighting mode, especially during rapid as opposed to taking care of what is urgent at the time, putting those fires out, mm-hmm. as opposed to working on what is really important, which is processes that will help us not have that same fire in the future. Right. Did you find that situation? How did you handle that? I would love to you know, say that our, our leadership team and the, the management team within Roll20 was really um, great at, at doing that. And, and Nolan T. Jones, our CEO, spearheaded that movement to help distinguish between uh, an actual fire and a perceived fire or not a fire at all, key performance indicators and, and some standard operating objectives, right? Like being able to compare, did did the service keep running? Were we able to take on new users, take on new subscribers? Did did we make did we make our revenue goals, right? Did we set revenue goals? That really differentiates for me between the firefighting and and everything else. There's a base level of of success, right? Like uh, it, did someone give me money for the thing that I have them to give me money for. Uh, and, and defining that early so that everyone has those, those same definitions makes the scalability possible, right? And then reapproaching um, how you expect to see change happen with you in the organization, within your product and within your product organization too, in order to solve the problems that keep coming up over and over again. A quote that Nolan, I, I use from Nolan, the, my, my CEO, often enough is it's fine to have 100 problems every quarter when we look at the list of problems we have. We just want them to be a different 100 problems or a different 25 problems. We, we solved 25 and we got a whole new 25 on there. Yeah, we're learning that way and we're moving forward. That's important. Okay, so that provides some really good context in what, what it was like in the environment when you got there right away. What were some of, like, maybe more of the tactical problems that you ran into, actions that you took, changes that you made, or things you put in place? I think one of the real ones from the what got us here won't get us there philosophy was the, the way that we listened to our community. Um, early uh, our community has been crucially important to to Roll Twenty. Like people become users, and then as they uh, gain knowledge and, and affinity for the software, they become part of a community in a really amazing way. It's wonderful to see. And our product research was heavily influenced by that from from the very beginning. As we grew in size, and we had to start soliciting additional feedback and, and listen to it in a different way and be able to integrate that into what we're hearing from our community. But the, but the truth is, you know, that someone who's willing to log on uh, to uh, a place on the internet and type out a message is going to have a very strong opinion at that point. And, and strong opinions are great. They're good to have. But we also uh, need to get the weak opinions and find the people who aren't yet ready to expose themselves or expose their their thoughts and feelings and, and the 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 have that intimate of a relationship with a company that they just met that they just created. They all the only thing they've given us so far is an email address 
And and so they're, if they have a bad experience, they're not going to volunteer that information. We have to go seek that out and find it. So making that shift was was one of the more tactical uh, decisions. And that one has taken that will I think that will continue to take time. Right. There's always going to be improvements that can be made there. But I'm really happy with how we've interacted with our community, both on a quantitative and qualitative level. Mm-hmm. It's a really good insight. When you have a community, especially one as large as yours, you have those vocal people who are going to say how they want things, and they may not represent the majority, right? And this is the issue with lead user research, right? Yeah. We love those lead users because they know our product so well, and they kind of push the boundaries on the product, and we may get good ideas from them, but they may not represent the majority of the customer base. Absolutely. And they're great too. Those lead users are wonderful and and we need them. We can't devalue them. It's just being able to elevate the voice of the customer, the user who gets lost when um, it's purely voluntary. Right. Very good. Okay. Any other key problem you wanted to highlight? I think I would say that hiring was uh, a lot of fun and that was a big challenge, especially hiring within the product organization. That is always a compromise. And you're, unless you're only hiring unicorns, which means that your budget is infinite, and that's cool too, you know, let me know. That's a problem I'd love to have too. Um, there's always coaching, right? You're making a choice about how you're going to coach this person and how you're going to bring them up to the level where they, they can perform and, and add to the organization in that really great way. Yep. Yeah, I'd love to dive into that further. For the sake of time, I'm going to not go into details, but I'm sure the the culture aspect was part of that as well, right? Very much. Finding and getting people to appreciate the culture, especially in the virtual organization, right, where you're not bumping elbows with each other. Right. Excellent. Okay, that's actually a good lead into a message from our sponsor, which is the RPM Experience. And this is training to help mentor product managers. For example, Praxair used this for five years every year with their group of new onboarding product managers to kind of get them on the same page. So I'll try to position this with you and you tell me if this is something that would make sense for you or what you think about it, right? So this puts me on the spot. So in the RPM Experience, we're trying to build that foundation so everyone has the same body of knowledge knowledge as a product manager. It's really this holistic body of knowledge, right? How do we go from idea mm-hmm. all the way to development, product launch, and managing the product and life cycle? And where does strategy fit into that? Where do teams fit into that? Where does culture fit into that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of think of it as an organic approach that the organization itself reflects the training in the way that makes sense for them, and they put it into use right away. And one thing that makes this work so well is we do it virtually over the course of nine weeks, meeting once a week for 75 minutes, an hour and 15 minutes. Because I found when I was doing this as like a two, three-day workshop, mm-hmm. come into the organization and do it, everyone was really excited, and then almost nothing never changed, right? And everyone else that does training tells me the same thing, um, that almost nothing changes. And in this approach, we actually find people putting into practice what they're learning as they go, applying it to their actual projects. And because of that, people start collaborating better. We're breaking down some barriers. They're talking with each other differently than they usually do. Um, And they're really moving forward together. So the RPM experience makes that all happen virtually to kind of get teams in the same place together. And I've also seen uh, organizations use it at a higher level, Mm -hmm. like among directors and VPs, to get them working better together, too, and just understanding what does it mean to develop product. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on something like that for, in a sense, coaching team members to learn more about this thing, product management. I think that it's crucial to start from uh, the same place, right? Especially when you're hiring all across the organization, getting 
the same body of knowledge and and a solidified kind of gospel, if you will, right, that you can refer back to and say, this is the way that we said we were going to do things. And so this is how I want to uh, I want to approach it, or this is the way that I'm going to expect you to approach it, boss, manager, coworker. Yeah, absolutely. I think the virtual aspect is really great too, because the the summer camp experience is never um, as good as something that's longer term. Yeah, it's that mountain high you get, and then you go back and nothing changes, right? Absolutely. And so many of our teams have virtual members. This works really well to get people together across from different locations. So, if anyone's listening that wants to find out more information about the RPM experience, the Rapid Product Master Experience, and how it can help your organization as well become higher performing at product development, product management, simply go to productmasterynow.com slash RPM. If we had someone in your position, you know, that you were three years ago, kind of maybe moving into an organization with immature processes or a big change going on, and the product responsibility was really on their shoulders, do you have any advice that you would offer at this point to say, you know, this is how to think about navigating that from the beginning? Yeah, it would probably be exactly the same, but I would add one thing to this person. So exactly the same being uh, listen more than you talk, read more than you type, connect with the individuals, and build allies in, in that way. The the one thing that a product person in that situation would really need to know is that uh, smaller is bigger. You know, the delivering the lowest amount of value you can that, that works in that increment is going to make your... Um, successes pile up a whole lot faster than your failures. And it, it might be fun and uh, exciting and interesting to grab for, uh, to reach for the stars, and you definitely can, but you, you've got to build a launch pad before you take off. Oh, that's pretty good. I should, I'm going to write that down. That's pretty good. Yeah. Off the top of my head right there. Yeah, we got to coin that one, right? You got to build a launch pad. That was excellent. You heard it here first, product masters. Title of my book, if anybody's wanting to make offers. <laughs> Build a launch pad before you take off. There it goes. So that is pretty good. Okay. I like that advice because I think it's tempting to come in as the person who has the process experience and say, okay, this is what we got to get put in place, right? And we might do a good job listening for you know the first 30 days and trying to really understand what the environment is and then just lay out, here's a solution, as opposed to building that network around you of trusted people that together you can move things forward faster later. And there's phrase that is in a few industries that people will know, go slow to go fast, Yep. right? And especially if we're dealing with products where life is on the line at times, go slow and then you can go fast later. Absolutely. And that's good advice. So build the launch pad. There you go. Yeah. Book coming out next year. We'll have you back uh, <laughs> to talk about it. Okay. As product masters know, we love innovation quotes around here. What do you have for us? And tell us what that means to you. I love a quote from Andy Warhol from his book, The Philosophy of Andy Warhol. They always say time changes things, but you actually have to change them yourself. I found this quote, oh, maybe more than 15 years ago at this point, and it, it really struck me, especially from someone as, as prolific in change as Andy Warhol was. And, and being a person who's drawn to change, who's excited by change, and who likes to see change happen, make change happen, it's it's it, it, it reaches me almost on an emotional level of that we, we can sit back and we can let life happen to us or, or we can grab onto it and, and make things change ourselves. And when we make change happen, became, we can shape the world around us, shape, shape the products that we touch, shape the people. And as long as you're not evil, it always, it always ends up better than when it started. 
That's great. I appreciate you sharing that. As you did, I was thinking about a very personal example for myself. And it's actually how this podcast got started. Um, in 2013, I put my wife and two young kids who were seven and 10 at the time into a motorhome, and we drove around the U.S. for a year and two weeks. And I was doing interviews in person with people, um, thinking I might write a book later. And, you know, got back home, life gets busy, that never happened. But I started the podcast as a way to continue having those very interesting conversations and sharing them with others. But one of the things that was going on personally was some family dynamics that I didn't particularly like, particularly with my kids. And we were excited about the idea of doing the, the travel around mm-hmm. the U.S., and we weren't sure if it was going to work out, but we were pretty sure we would regret not trying, so we yeah. tried. And then I realized that even though I changed the environment, I didn't change me. And it wasn't until I started changing that the family dynamics started changing as well, right? That uh, I had to change myself in the process. So thanks for sharing that quote. That hit home for me. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. How can people find out about anything going on there at the company, Roll20, your work, connect with you? Yeah, you can definitely see my work at uh, Roll20.net. The blog.roll20.net has all of our news coming out. We we publish a lot there. Um, always really excited about the new games that we support on our platform, as well as the uh, tried and true games that you've probably heard of, like Dungeons and Dragons. Um, Roll20 is a free virtual tabletop, so if you're still trying to connect with people around around the uh, country that you haven't been with in a while, or just to reduce the stress around planning a game night, Roll20 does that really well. From a personal standpoint, you can find my very neglected blog at kentonhanson.com. There's a couple different great articles in there that that stay, stay true. And uh, yeah, if I see the Google Analytics traffic shoot out of the roof, maybe I'll post something. So if you want to see that book, let me know there. <laughs> okay. So product masters, let's let's help with that. We want uh, Kenton to write, tell me, I did write this phrase down. What was it again? The launch pad? Uh, you know what? I didn't either. I'll have to listen oh, to the podcast we'll to find to, out We'll why. have to go back to the recording. Yeah. Okay. There it goes. But build the launch pad first. That might've been it. So Something like that. Build the launch pad. Okay, you can find all those show, all those links in the show notes and also that one-page uh, PDF to help you put things into action now from any insights that we shared here at productmasterynow.com slash 346. Product Masters, go check that out. Kenton, thank you so much for your time with us. Thanks so much, Chad. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.